Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Jared Jones. He is the head chaplain at the Holy Trinity Episcopal Academy in Melbourne, Florida. I give you Jared Jones. Jared, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, if we were live streaming this, people would see you look fantastic. You look like a podcaster. You've Thank got, you. Well, I try really hard. You're you're you're, you're succeeding. You're not just I, trying. You're succeeding. I especially positioned this bookshelf behind me with um, uh, a whole well, all of the all of the uh, books of Luther's works that I that I can currently afford. Which I love it. Not many of them. I love it. So this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Yeah, which is a so, big deal, I hear. Oh, yeah. So this is, you know, 40 days. Got to get your red out. You got to get your red out. Yeah, you got to get your red out. This can is you after- wear red? Is there like a, can you wear red after Memorial Day? I guess, I guess you can. No, but that's you know, right. You know, it's interesting. I wore white. I, I wore white a couple times before Memorial Day and I was researching it. And they said that's an old school thing based on Northern stuff because in the north, it was usually colder, and so the fabric that was white was usually not warm. And in the, they were saying in the south, white was Easter, not Memorial Day. And they were saying now, like, it's, you know, it, it's kind of passe that because of the way fabrics are in wet. It's basically that that's a little overstated. So for our listeners who are looking not just for exegetical insights and electionary passages, but some, you know, fashion tips. That's what we need. We need uh, we need to get JD Coke in here for some fashion advice. We should. We should definitely do that. We might do that in a bonus yeah. episode. But you're right, Scott. That is interesting. It is. It is. It's an interesting note. So here, our first passage for Pentecost is Acts 2, verses 1 through 21, which is the sort of classic Pentecost text. The alternative actually is interesting, too, because it's Genesis 11, 1 through 9, which is the scattering of the nations, right? The Tower right. of Babel and the scattering of the nations. So you could read sort of these stories as. You you could read one as almost the undoing of the other, but here in Acts you've got. Though to, like, to be specific, don't read the Genesis eleven passage without reading Acts two. Yeah, that would probably be, not be a good. Yeah, idea. that wouldn't be a good thing to. You're just cursed. That's it. Exactly. Done. Exactly. Yeah, it's very yeah. In Genesis eleven, is, that text is a great just like sort of. Uh, you know, we're going to make a name for ourselves, right? Like Peter Lightheart, a friend of the show and a good guy, is uh, he wrote a great little intro to the Old Testament called A House for My Name. So you think of like God making a house for his name versus people making a name for themselves. It's almost like, you know, there's right. two ways to live. You either receive your name or try to make your name. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. But here we have, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are together in one place. Suddenly from heaven, there comes this rush of a violent wind, and people are filled with the Spirit. There's these tongues of fire. And there are Jews there from every nation uh, under heaven living in Jerusalem for their religious religious pilgrimage. And people are hearing these languages. You know, people from different areas are hearing 
their own languages spoken. People are perplexed and saying, what does this mean? And, you know, they say they are filled with new wine. And I love, this is one of my favorite, like, oh, yeah. verses. It's, it's not, yeah, it's a, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's never like, guys, we would never, we're, we're apostles. It's a, but at 2 a.m. It's, 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 it's that would totally be possible, but it's only, it's 9 a.m. Come on. I mean, it's like I mean how gauche do you think we are to be drunk at exactly, 9 a.m.? Exactly. And then he says that, you know, he talks about the Old Testament promise that in the last days, God will pour out spirit on all flesh and sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions, old men dreams and, and how this, this basically this hope in the Old Testament of the spirit being poured out is, is happening right there in their midst. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge moment, I think. Um, and it's, it really is a huge uh, theme all throughout Acts. The spirit is kind of continually poured out. Um, right now it's poured out to these um, specific uh, Jews uh, who are then given to preach to to the nations. But then throughout the book of Acts, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger of who who receives the spirit. Um, and so, you know, there's, it's more like there are a bunch of uh, Pentecosts throughout this whole story. Yeah, because the spirit. Yeah, you're right. The spirit keeps being manifest and, you know, and there are different developments oftentimes to people that are representing like for instance uh you know people that are representing boundaries that are being crossed and things like that so it's yeah it's really it's interesting but this is you're right the kind of the primary one here and the first one where it's interesting too because you know one of the things i think that there's interesting to note about the spirit in the old testament it's not as though the spirit's not there but the spirit just kind of comes and goes like it, it right. will it will come and rest on somebody like it'll rest on Saul for a while, then leave. Right. And then he right. gets kind of got a bad spirit and, you know, David's trying to play the liar and calm him down things like that. But it's like a wind. wind. Right. Yeah. But what happens with Jesus is the spirit comes and stays, right? Like when the spirit right. descends on him. So it's not like Jesus does miracles because he's the eternal son. He does them in the spirit, the way any human being would do things in faith and life through the spirit. And so th there seems to be this parallel idea that the that the successors to Jesus that his his people will receive the spirit in in a similar way that he did. I mean so it's it's it, it with an abiding kind of presence. Right. Yeah, I, I think this passage is fascinating um especially in today's world theologically. I mean like the, the Holy Spirit is a that's a it's a um oh, I don't know, it carries a lot of weight or uh, to talk about the Holy Spirit is to open up a whole lot of uh things. And What's interesting to me is that the Holy Spirit um, in Pentecost and, and really throughout, uh, you know, there are images here in Acts 2 of, you know, with the tongues of fire um, resting on them. You know, I think it kind of is an image back to Isaiah 6 when he gets the coal of fire um, placed on his tongue that, that the Holy Spirit is mainly given um, to to produce or, or uh, let me think how to put it. The, the Holy Spirit is mainly given to drive the proclamation of the gospel that, that these men in this passage, that the apostles are given the spirit to proclaim the, the gospel of God's action and work in Christ. Um, which I don't know. I think that's interesting just in, insofar as like a lot of the times when people talk about the Holy Spirit, it can be kind of, um, uh, I don't know, weird, I guess is the, is the best way to put it a little bit superstitious. Um, 
And the, the, the Holy Spirit is never so much about the power that it gives you uh, insofar as it goes, but as much as that power bears witness to Christ, right? Right, right. The Spirit is generally, generally self-effacing, right? It, it, it testifies to Christ. It, it's not right. subjectively saying, like, buy these shoes or, you know, I, I was at a Pentecostal service once where the person got up and sp- spoke in tongues and then interpreted their own word. And I'm like, that's a great gift because you'd be like, all right, okay, but you know, you just say, you know, start right. doing your utterance and say, I give me a hundred dollars. Like, right. Imagine being married to that person. Uh, she looked single. She, she was. She looked like a, a spinster to me, but maybe, <laughs> maybe she wasn't. Yeah, I think. Um, so, for instance, you'll hear a lot of people talk from time to time about like uh, that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, that uh, we spend all of our time talking about God, the father and God, the son, but no one ever wants to talk about the Holy Spirit. And to me, when I look at things like Pentecost, um, the fact that anyone would ever talk about Christ, the crucified son of God risen for our, you know, dying for our sins, risen for our justification is a miracle in and of itself that is produced by the spirit. Um, in the sense that uh, if it at all ever seems like people keep talking about Jesus and they're not talking about the Holy Spirit, that's because the Holy Spirit is doing its job. His absolutely, job. yeah, absolutely, <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not. He's. I think. I think if everyone's saying like, "Hey, we want to talk about the Holy Spirit," I think the Holy Spirit would be saying, "Guys, no, you. I'm here to get you to talk about Christ. You know, that is the main. That is the main point." Yeah, you it, overstating that. No, I think absolutely. And I think it's interesting, too, because one of the commentators I was looking at today was talking about wind and fire and the things they symbolize. And they were talking about how wind, uh, that basically that it that this isn't a quiet or subtle wind, like in First Kings with, you know, with God's gentle voice, I guess, to Elijah or something, right. or a, a subtle wind that breathes life into humanity, like in Genesis 2 or in John 20, where Jesus breathes upon you're saying that this is the strongest illusion might be the the end time wind of Ezekiel 37. You know the, the the breathing life into the dead bones and the dry bones. You know and and, right. and and what's happening here is there is a sort of you know rising. You know every Christian right, you die with Christ and rise and and that's what the Spirit does and yeah and testifies to Christ because it's the Spirit of Christ. Right. Or like First Kings eight, I think, is when Solomon dedicates the first temple. And it says this mighty rushing wind um, enters the temple. You know that what what we're seeing here is the church is the new um, as the body of Christ is the new perfunctory you know temple. And you know God had always proclaimed or promised that from His temple His word would go forth. You know His uh, the proclamation would go forth. And so the I, I don't know just this idea that the Spirit exists. Um, his work is to is to uh, is to drive people to proclaim to confess right to confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and uh, the Spirit accompanies um, the gospel uh, and that's why you know the reformers really um, sought to to I guess you could say limit but maybe designate the Spirit's activity to the proclamation of the word yeah and I think that's what ties too to the to the speaking in different languages this idea that you know the the gospel is going to go from jerusalem to samaria to all the earth and th- there's this sign that they'll be empowered to speak the word everywhere 
you know, that, right. that, that here you're, the, the empowerment takes a specific form for their calling to go to the, you know, every corner of the earth. Right. And what I love is that they're all preaching the same message and it's the spirit contextualizing it to the people. Sometimes I think what we refer to when we refer to contextualization, sorry, contextualization is kind of like finding different parts of the message that might we think might apply to this cultural or this cultural context. Or, you know, people say like, well, you know, uh, justification by faith may have worked back in Luther's time, but nowadays we need something. Um, you know, we need something different. People don't need that anymore. Well, no, I think I think we're called to preach the message, and the Spirit contextualizes it and and applies it to the hearts of people who hear. You know, in in this case, in their own language. Yeah, there's this great quote by Craig Keener who is, has is commenting on this passage for the Urban's Lectionary Commentary. He says that the first disciples Jesus recruited in Luke were hardly the models of power we would expect when they began following him. The entire point of Pentecost is that God will accomplish his purposes through us, not because we are powerful in ourselves, but because he will show his power through us. Amen. On to Romans. We have our second passage comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. A great Pentecost text because it talks about all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And that that we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but that we've received a spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father, it's the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, join heirs with Christ. Uh, and that that is what enables us to suffer with him so that we'll be glorified like him. So this is great sort of talk about what the the fruit of the Spirit really is or the work of the Spirit really is. It's, it's, it creates human freedom, not uh, a spirit of slavery or, or bondage, which usually, I you know, it's interesting because I think anytime we hear an ought, uh, that we don't want when is, is is different than ought, right? When a command right. comes to us as not, we feel we don't feel free, right? We know we might still do the thing, do the right thing or something, but it's when is and ought match up that we actually feel free. And I think that Paul seems to be saying that the Spirit creates something like that, that we're not in spiritual bondage. But there's uh, there's that great line from the William Cowper hymn, "Love Constrains to Obedience." He says, "To, to see the law by Christ fulfilled." To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. And I think that's kind of what the spirits, you know, Paul's getting at here. Well, yeah. I mean, if the problem is um, that is not just that we don't know um, what, you know, uh, what the right thing to do. I heard a sermon a while back with Tim Keller where he mentioned this guy, um, uh, I think Needleman, Jacob Needleman. Let me see what his name is. Uh, yeah, Jacob Needleman. Who, talk, who wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? And his main kind of point in the book is um, it's not that people don't know what to do or what the right thing or what the good thing to do is. Um, that, that human beings do, by and large, you know, know what they ought to be doing. Uh, they're just not able to do it, right? Um, so if the problem is not that we don't have knowledge of what's good, we, the problem is we don't have the will to choose the good, well, then we're going to need something else. and that's. And that's what the spirit does is it, is it works in us um, that, that Paul says in Philippians two to, it, to will um, uh, 
it, it changes our wills to actually want to choose to obey and love Christ, not out of um, fear um, or even some type of like um, duty bound obligation, but out of the same, I guess, obligations you put yourself under with your wife or somebody that you love of like, yeah, I, I, I want to do this. I want to serve you. Yeah, you're more free. It's interesting because you're actually less free when you're conflicted with choices. We, I mean, we often think of freedom as well. The more choices I have, the more free I am. But really, I mean, God is the least arbitrary and the most free, right? So, right. so the, the, the freedom doesn't come in arbitrary choice. It actually comes when, when the is and the ought. Yeah, they kind of merge into one. Right, yeah. There was this great story a couple of years ago uh, there in New York where this guy was on a subway platform, uh, an older African-American gentleman with two, I think he had two daughters with him, two young daughters. And he saw this guy have a seizure and fell into the, onto the subway. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and the, there was a train coming. So he pushed his girls back and jumped on the kid and pushed him down so that the subway ran over him and the kid, but it didn't touch them because he got him low enough. Right. Right. And and when they asked him about it, and they're able to say, "Well, you know, why did you do what you did?" And he said, "I just did what anybody would have done." The point is, well, nobody would have done it, (laughs) right? Right. But that's but that's sort of what the spirit is. Like, on one moment you think, "Well, no one would do," and then yeah, it creates this 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 counterintuitive will in us, right? Yeah, right. Which again, I think you know, if it means that we're doing something that feels natural, almost natural and almost simple, so simple as to not be, um, worthy of any recognition. Right. I mean, that's what he's kind of saying. I just did what anyway would do. Well, I think faith is the same thing of like, um, that again, in this passage, the, the activity of the spirit is located, not in giving us some new power, of life towards life, some new kind of confidence. I mean, it gives us those things, but it's not about some kind of self-fulfilled, um, self-made like, Oh, I have the, I'm tapping into the spirit and now I can, I can breeze through life or whatever. Um, that, that I think you've said this before in something that I heard from you, um, where you said like, it's a miracle. Anytime anyone trusts Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That even that in of itself, it seems so simple to us. And so, well, there's got to be more than just um, uh, trusting, you know, that Jesus died for me and that that God um, is true to his word. And if we just stop and think and go, well, no, like there is nothing. I mean, there's a, there's nothing more than that. That's miraculous for someone to believe that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's 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 yeah, it can that- only be a work of the spirit. Right, just as the virgin birth of the resurrection was a work of the spirit, so so is every work, every you know, kindling of faith in the human heart. Yeah. We go on to John, the fourteenth chapter, verses eight through seventeen. Uh, and this here we have Philip saying to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And still you do not know where whoever's seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you, you know, don't you know that I am in the father, you know, the father's in me. So it's this right. interesting passage where, you know, 
I love that Phil's just all right. Lord, show us the Father and what's good enough. <laughs> right, right. You know, look. I mean, we you think. Look, we don't want to no make deal. demands. You know, yeah. like we're not saying. You know, we don't need like a replica of the Ark or anything like that. Right. Just show us the Father and we're right. Good. It's interesting. Luther specifically uses this passage in his um one of his defenses in the Heidelberg Catechism or not Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Heidelberg Disputation, where he talks about how. Philip here is the quintessential theologian of glory that he is. He sees Christ in all of his um, ordinariness, I guess, in his, uh, you know, he he sees Christ himself and he says, I want to see, show us the father as in there's got to be more than this. You know, I want to get behind Christ to the real, the real truth. I want to get behind Christ to the real thing um, because it can't be as simple as this man that's standing in front of me. Uh, and just this idea of like, no, like if you've seen Christ, you've seen the father himself and there is no, um, you know, uh, uh, there is no God uh, standing behind Christ. Yeah. And this is the claim in John one eighteen, right? No, like Jesus, no one has seen God, but the son and the the son makes him known. The, the, I think the Greek there is actually exegeto, like exe, the son exegetes the father. He explains the father. So you have this, uh, you know, it's interesting because Dale Bruner in his fantastic commentary on John says, basically, he says that I don't know that we have climbed any higher in the gospel of John than in the sentence with this, with its claim, the person who has seen me has seen the father. And, he, you know, he alludes to the fact that this is the fulfillment of the prologue. You know, th- th- this is, you know, th- here it is. And yeah, it's interesting you say about Philip being the theologian of glory, because I talked about this in my sermon last week about glory in John 17. I asked the congregation, like, can you think of a positive use of the word glory, right? Where you'd say, right. oh, I'm looking for the glory, or that person's great. I hope they get the glory. I mean, usually it's negative, but it's actually the way God uses it. It's the opposite of the way. We, for him, the glory is the cross. And when he's saying, Father, glorify me, it's 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 in his vulnerability and his weakness and his suffering for sinners that he's glorified. So it's sort of the counter glory, you know. So it's right. kind of like, yeah. I mean, what we think of uh, of as glory uh, is the theology of glory, but the real glory in John is the theology of the cross. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just when I said that God, there is no God behind Jesus. There is a story about um, uh, uh, what's his name, Torrance, who um. When he was serving in the military, um, he was a chaplain and he came across a, a young soldier who was dying after after this battle. I guess the battle had ended. And so he was going through performing last rites here and there. And um, and as he knelt over this like 20 year old soldier, uh, the soldier asked him, uh, Padre, is God really like Jesus? Uh, and he said that Torrance assured him, yes, uh, yes, he is. And the soldier then died. Um, and so one of the things that Torrance took away from that is um, that he kept saying that kind of one of his, um, I guess, theological points was that there is no God behind the back of Jesus. You know, yeah. there is that God, Jesus is God reveal, revealing him his true self. Um, and that uh, that is what the spirit um, and that that's why this work of the spirit is so important is because who would ever believe that this uh, crucified man is the is the um, revelation of God himself other other than by work of the spirit? Yeah. And, you know, there's there, it's interesting because sometimes people claim with reference to God, you know, the significance of mystery, which is important. Right. But the right. mystery isn't behind Jesus. The mystery is Jesus. The mystery right, is right. that the, the omnipotent one is the one who allows himself to be powerless before sinners. 
that that's not there's not the, the mystery behind that right that is the mystery well yeah that's like what we say in the and at least in the episcopal church the eucharistic prayer that we claim the mystery of faith christ has died christ has risen and christ will come again that that is that is the mystery yeah and 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 it's great you know great pentecost theme that when Jesus says that, uh, he says that, uh, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, greater works than these, cause I'm going to the father. So it's it, living in, in Jesus, you know, following the way of Jesus comes about through faith, which is the work of the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a full circle to Pentecost, my friend. Love it. Thanks for doing this, Jared and yeah. blessings Thanks, to Scott. You and to our listeners. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Jared for coming on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening to Synaxis this week. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.